Well, again, welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you today. And if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, I'm going to get there in a minute. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you. But uh, we're ending this series, Shoulda, Coulda, Woulda, and today we're going to talk about something that most people don't like to talk about, and that's failure. Most people don't like to admit it, and uh, most people really don't like to talk about it. Because failure is one of those things that we try to avoid, we try to cover up, we try to, uh, let's just don't talk about that, let's just kind of get away from it. But the reality is, is that everybody in this room has failed. We've all, we've all have failed. We, we've, we all have failures. And, and what I want to do is, these next few moments, I don't want to make you feel bad about your failure. I'm not trying to beat you up over your failure. But I want to try to help you to learn how to fail forward, to survive failure. And some of you would say, well, I have survived. I'm still here. Yeah, but what's happened is is you're maimed. Uh, You're hurt. So there's a part of your heart that you don't go to anymore. There's a part of your emotions that you push away. There's a part of you that you just kind of have severed. And uh, you may look whole. You may look okay. But the reality is, is that you've cut some things off. You've cut some people off. You've... You've cut some dreams off. You've cut some goals off. You've just kind of shrunk down. And uh, you're just living life way below what God intended for you to live. And it's all because you've had this thing called failure. And it's something that we all deal with or that we all face, but not all of us deal with it. And very few of us have been able to survive failure for the good. And, and there's a person in Scripture that gives, I think, probably one of the greatest depictions of how to overcome failure, and his name is Peter. Peter was a, a disciple of Jesus. He was a, a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, he, matter of fact, he was part of the, uh, the, the first disciples. He was, a, he was one of the twelve. Within the twelve, the Bible says there was an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. These are the guys who, who basically were the inner circle to Jesus. And, uh, and Peter was the one who went on to lead the New Testament church. But Peter's personality, according to Scripture, he was a, a very bold individual. Uh, he was a very passionate individual, very outspoken. Matter of fact, spoke up kind of for the group, if you would. He was rugged. He was a risk taker. The Bible says he was a, a fisherman by trade. He was a commercial fisherman. So he, was, he, was, he wasn't scared to get his hands dirty or to get involved with things. Uh, and, uh, and he was one, a type of individual that was uh, probably somewhat stubborn, uh, probably somewhat very much just get involved, just get out of the way, let me do it, let, let me take charge. And when he encounters Jesus, he leaves everything. He leaves his entire life. The Bible says the fishing and leaves his nets and his boats on the shore to follow Jesus. And for three years of following Jesus, life has been pretty great. I mean, he's got to walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus. I mean, in three years, he's been able to see blind eyes open and, 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 and the dead come to life again. He's been able to see the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. He's been able to be there on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave the, gave the greatest sermon ever told. He, Peter was the one disciple when they saw Jesus in the middle of the sea that he walked on water. I mean, Peter has lived the life. And what's happened is, is that after the end of those three years... Jesus gathers the disciples together and they have the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, Jesus begins to tell these 12 men that have lived with him, that have talked with him, that he's taught, that he's poured into, that that they've shared every waking hour together. 
that in a few hours, everything in their world is about to be upside down. In a few hours, everything's about to change. In a few hours, everything that they know to be normative, everything that they've experienced in the last three years is going to radically shift. And that in the next three hours, they're going to scatter. They're going to be like a sheep without a shepherd. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 33, Peter responds to this and he says this, But Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and even to death. Again, this is that brash, passionate, bold, stubborn, risk-taker, commercial fisherman. Let's go. Let's get her done. And Jesus replies in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Jesus then was arrested moments after this. It's a fascinating, fascinating walk through Scripture. He's arrested, and he's taken. And basically what they've done is they shuttle him between the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, which would have been the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leadership of the day, and the Roman courts. And then he goes back from the Jewish courts to the Roman courts. And they do this in the middle of the night. Uh, they take him from the Garden of Gethsemane. This is all before, uh, the, the, you know, before Jesus is beaten, before, he's, uh, before he carries the cross, before he's, he's uh, dead on the cross and dies for the sins of humanity. It's in those midnight hours. They did this in the middle of the night because they wanted to keep, the, they wanted to keep uh, all the chatter down, basically. Because they knew if they did it in the daytime, that they could, uh, they could expose the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, for what they were doing. And so they wanted to build their case against Jesus and then the next day present it to them and then have him crucified. And so they were working throughout the night to make this happen. And the Bible basically says that Peter is kind of following Jesus in the shadows. He's, he's watching and he's listening. He's within the earshot of what's going on. He's paying attention. And really what he's thinking is, how do I help, help my Lord and Savior? What's about to happen? At one point, when the, when the soldiers grab Jesus... Peter reaches for his sword and he cuts off the ear of the soldier. The soldier's name was Malchus. And <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. This is probably my favorite story, especially when I was in fifth grade. And so, and Jesus stops Peter and he reaches down and grabs Malchus's ear from the ground and puts it back on his head and instantly heals him. Could you imagine taking someone into custody and your ear has just been severed because of one of the followers and then the man who you're about to take into custody reaches down, grabs the ear, your ear, puts it back on your head and you're instantly healed? Scary. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, man, like, I didn't get paid enough money to do this job. And so, this is what's going on. And in the middle of all of this, um, uh, as Peter's following closely, look at verse 56, or excuse me, verse 55 of Luke chapter 22. And when, there had, when, when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, this is in the middle of the night, uh, that he sat down. And Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him sitting there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him, and she said, This man was with him. He's with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Verse 58, Later someone else saw him and said, You're also the one with him. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Verse 60, But Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Look at verse 61. I think it's one of the most chilling verses of Scripture. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then 
The Lord remembered the word, or then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Can you imagine? I mean, just, let's just be real for a minute. I mean, we've all had faults and failures. But could you imagine that the moment that you failed, all of a sudden your eyes caught the eyes of Jesus? I mean, do you remember like your dad? Like, I mean, growing up in church, my parents were over here. And you just said, well, your parents said it wasn't cool, right? And you would act a fool, right? Your dad would tell you, don't embarrass me in church. Son, act like you've been there before. But you were trying to show off because you were like in the eighth grade and you thought you were cool because you had your new Nike Air Jordans on and your guest jeans on, right? Come on with your crisp polo shirt. And you're trying to be cool and make the little girls with, you know, that didn't know how to wear makeup at that time and the braces and the whole day. Ah, remember the hair was like this, the big poufants? That was the 80s, right? Remember that? And you were trying to make it. And then all of a sudden, you would look back at your parents and your dad gave you that look like, I am going to kill you. And you just knew, I'm dead. I'm dead. It's done. Stick a fork in me. I'm dead. I better enjoy these moments of my life. This is it. Now, can you imagine Jesus in the middle of your failure, as soon as you have failed, your eyes connect with the eyes of Jesus. No wonder what went on inside his heart. I mean, there's no, te- I mean, I wouldn't, I, that's probably one of the most terrifying verses of Scripture to me. Then the Lord turned and looked straightway at Peter. And Jesus is being shuttled from this court to this court in the midnight hours. He denies him, and boom, immediately there he is. I mean, Peter encountered the biggest, the biggest failure of his life. I mean, you know, we all start life with confidence and with dreams and with ideas. And then, not too long into it, we hit failures and we hit walls, we hit setbacks. And, and the big question is, how do you overcome that? How, how do you deal with that? How do you survive failure? Well, that's what I want to talk about. I, I want to give you some steps to survive failure. That's exactly what, what Peter did. I, I want to give you these some things. Because if you look at what Peter did subsequent to those days, it gives you kind of a, a pathway, if you would, to, to, to walk this out. The, the first thing that Peter does is that he owns it. If you're going, when you fail, you have to own it. And by own it, I mean you have to own the failure. He doesn't blame it on anyone. He doesn't point to anyone. He doesn't say, man, that little girl in the garden, you know, there by the fireplace, I mean, she, she was really scary. That, that guy thought he was going to beat me up. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, you know, he doesn't blame it on anyone. Verse 61 says that he remembered the word of the Lord. And then he left and he wept bitterly. He owned it. He didn't play the blame game. He didn't do any of this kind of stuff. When you or I fail, we have to take ownership of our failure. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Some part of your failure you own. Some part of your failure is your responsibility. Some part, you missed it. Maybe you were naive. Maybe you, were, um, maybe you weren't paying attention. Maybe you didn't t- dot the I's and cross the T's. Maybe you didn't p- heed the warning signals. Maybe you, you weren't paying attention to the details. Maybe you weren't listening. It might not have been that you did anything grossly in error, but there's something that you did that you missed that got you into this situation. What is it? And, and so you have to identify, what is that? You have to dissect it and, and look through it and walk through it. And it may not mean that you own everything, but you own something. So what is it? Own it. Identify it. Own it. And then admit it. If not to yourself, if not to anyone else, but to yourself. This is where I missed it. This is where I went wrong. This is where I didn't see the warning signs. I, I, was, I was talking to a couple 
Um, a while back, Tammy and I were. They don't attend Life Church. So they have no connection here. Don't live in the city or in, the, in this. And we were talking, and they were going through a rough, a rough time. And, and we, were to, we were together at dinner, and uh, they were telling me what was happening in their world. And they were telling me, you know, what, what was going wrong. And, and some things were happening, and some bad things were happening to them. And honestly, they, they you know, I, they were, I mean, they, they had a good, I mean, they, they weren't doing everything wrong. But in the middle of the conversation, I looked at the husband, and I said, what part of that do you own? What's your responsibility in that? And he looked at me, and he looked at her, and he looked back at me, and he goes, what do you mean? I mean, I'm just telling you, every time there's a failure, you have a certain amount of responsibility. Nobody stuck a gun to your head and made you do that. You missed something, you were naive to something, you overlooked something, you didn't pay attention to something, there were warning signs, you didn't heed those, you didn't listen, you didn't pay attention. But you need to understand what that is. Because if you don't, what you will do is you'll repeat that mistake again. See, it's, it's, it's not wrong that you make a mistake, it's that when you make that mistake twice, three times, four times, when it becomes a repeated pattern, that's when it becomes an issue in your life. Failure is going to happen. It's a, part of, it's a part of growth, quite frankly. But at some point, you have to stop and you have to go, what part of this do I own? What part of this did I contribute to? What part of this am I in ownership of? And admit it and owner, own it and then, then move on. Peter did just that. He didn't blame anybody else. He just took responsibility and he dealt with it himself. Second thing you have to do is you have to break it. Break it. And by, by breaking it, I mean you have to be broken. You have to be broken. I just want you to listen to Peter's self-sufficient attitude coming into this trial. Uh, we know the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. And they're written by four different individuals. And they were their personal accounts written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of their days with Jesus. These were all disciples. And so Matthew was a tax collector. He was an accountant. Luke was a physician. John was a beloved. John was the one who, uh, John was the guy that everybody liked. Everybody liked John. And, uh, and Mark was a completely different, different kind of a powerful individual. But in, in, in Matthew's gospel, this accountant, he begins to, to, to tell how he sees this encounter with uh, Peter and Jesus. In verse, chapter, Matthew chapter 26, verse 33. Just listen to this. And Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. But Peter declared, No, Lord. That's what he's saying. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Mark, in his gospel, says in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 72, And immediately the, ro the rooster crowed the second time, and Peter remembered the word that Jesus spoke to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. I mean, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to do this. And Peter says, no, Jesus, I'm not. Have you ever told Jesus, no, you're not going to do something? Sure you have. That time that he told you he wanted you to do this and you said no. That time he said you want to give this missionary, you went, I just don't think I have enough. Whatever it may be, we have these times where we kind of give God the good old-fashioned Heisman. And, and then the reality is, is that Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen and Peter says, no, I will never do this. Even after he tells him that. Listen, when that, when, when that, when that happened, the Bible says he began to break. And that's not accidental. Because we live in a world that does not value brokenness. We live in a world 
that doesn't teach brokenness. You, don't, you can't learn brokenness 101 in any university. They, they don't teach it in any MBA executive business course. The world in which we live in says you have to be whole. And if you're not whole, you have to at least keep up an appearance of whole. I don't care if it's smoke and mirrors. You have to let everybody else think that you're strong. Everybody else because they will intimidate you. They will come in on you. If they smell weakness, they will attack you. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And you better not ever act like you're broken, and if you are, you better put up a false front against it. The Bible teaches something totally different. The Bible teaches that unless you are broken, you cannot be used greatly. And we wonder why we struggle in church. We wonder why we struggle in faith. Because we want to have this American worldly idea of what it means to be powerful, and it's totally diametrically opposed to what God's Word says. God's Word says if you want to be first, then you've got to be last. If you want to be served, then you must first serve. If you want to be blessed, then you've got to bless someone else. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's opposite of everything else that we learn in the world in which we live. And the reality is, is that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be broken. God uses failure to bring us to the end of ourselves. The Bible says it's in our weakness that his strength is perfected. God isn't looking for strong people. God isn't looking for perfect people. God's not looking for talented people. Quite frankly, God's got all the talent he needs. He doesn't need you and I. He created the world and all that there is. I think he's pretty much got it. Really? So, (laughs) we don't need you. And here's the problem with the church. We want to act like we've got all of our junk together. And we don't. We want to act like we're all perfect. And we're not. And we show up and we want to say, "Ah, I don't want anybody to know. Why? The Bible says that when you're weak, that's when he's strong. Why not lean into weakness? Because it goes counterintuitive to our human fleshly understanding. I'm just going to tell you, I, Aaron Cole, am jacked up. And if I ever do anything that proves that, I told you first. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? At the end of the day, we're all imperfect people. And I don't mean that like me, but I just mean that like, honestly. I deal with things just like you do. I'm not any better than you are. And, and, And we're all one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And we have this ideology, but there's got to be someone perfect. There is. His name is Jesus. And he's it. He's the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. I, I have one of the five-fold ministry gifts, and that is the gift to pastor and to teach. That's my gifting, and I use it, and that's all I got. Sorry. And I like to eat. Is that helpful? I mean, that's, that's, what I, that's as good as it's going to get. But that doesn't preclude me from sin. And what I'm trying to say to you is that we would get over ourselves, and we would humble ourselves, and we would just understand that from the pastor to the deacon to the elder to the teacher to the life group leader to the youth pastor to the worst rankest sinner in the world, we're, the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross, that none of us are righteous, no, not one, that there's only one that's righteous, and his name is Jesus Christ, and we are all followers of his. We could come to the end of ourselves and we could lean into the brokenness that's called humanity. Because that's what it is. It's a broken road. There are days I want to quit. There are days I don't want to pastor. There are days I don't want to be in this position. Trust me. There are days I know things that I I don't want to know. There are situations I don't want to deal with. There are days where I just want to get in my F-150 and drive till I hear the country music. I just want to go away. 
There are days that you do the exact same thing. Maybe you don't like country music, but you understand what I'm saying. You, you get, because here's the deal is we're all human. And if we all really saw how human each other was, we'd all probably relax a little bit. And go, wow, and maybe learn something. That's what happens to Peter. He comes to the end of himself. He's no longer fighting who, where he's going to be in the kingdom and how great he's going to be. He is broken. And after you're broken, you have to pray it. You've got to pray through the situation, it being the situation. It's a process. Pray it. Peter's failure was so deep that he no longer considered himself to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus knew that. And when Jesus, after he dies on the cross, he's buried, and he raises again, what's happened is, is that these disciples that have been with Jesus are in shock. Have you ever lost somebody close to you through death? There's this void. There's this emptiness. There's this thing in you that goes, man, I just wish I could talk to him. I just wish I could have a conversation. I, I just, you maybe even pick up the phone to call them and they're not there anymore. There's this grieving process that takes place. There's this absence in this void. You have to understand, these 12 men had been with Jesus every hour of every day for three years. And they had just suffered this traumatic death of their Savior. And they're reeling from the human side of this. And they're trying to mentally get around. See, they don't have the Bible. They couldn't go back to the Bible. We go, let's just read the Bible and pray. They could only pray. And they didn't really understand it because at this point, there had been no prayer. There had only been conversation with Jesus. The Holy Spirit has not yet come. And so there's this vacuum, there's this void, there's this what do we do, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of lost. And people are looking at us like we're supposed to know because we were with Jesus. But the reality is, is that we are as lost as they are. And when Jesus Christ comes back, and when he, when, basically when he is raised from the dead, and the ladies, Mary and Martha, they, they come to the tomb, and they're looking for Jesus. And what does he say? He's not here for he's risen. But tell the disciples that he'll meet them in Galilee and tell Peter also. Why does he just, Peter's one of the disciples? You know why he did that? Because at that point in time, Peter didn't feel much like a disciple. And, and Jesus knew that Peter needed to know that he saw him in that moment, that he wanted to allow him to have that moment, that brokenness, that God was going to do something great through that, but that failure, but that he would redeem, redeem that failure. But John chapter 21, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 basically shows us that Peter, because of this failure, goes back to his old way of living. It's not so strange in what you and I do, is it? You give your life to God, you go to serve God, you crash and you burn, you fail, what do you do? I'm not worthy, so I'm going to leave church. This isn't working for me. This Jesus thing, this religious thing isn't working. I'm going to go back to where I was before. So I'm going to go back to the bar. I'm going to go back to the old lifestyle. I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to go back to all the things that had me before I came to Jesus. And I'm just going to kind of go back here because I know this, but I'm just not good enough to do this. And the devil of your soul, who the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, will show you all the things that you're not good at and will tell you how bad you are and just affirm the fact you need to go back. And what does Peter know before Jesus? Fishing. It's all he knew. Commercial fisherman. That was his life. Three years ago, he left his boats, he left his business, he left the nets on the shore. Three years later, after he has failed Christ, right in the eyes of Jesus, he doesn't feel worthy to be called a disciple. 
And the Bible says in John chapter 21, verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, the disciples, these are a real religious group of guys. It's great, great Christ followers. We'll go with you. So they went out, they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, but early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Remember he told them to go to Galilee. They're there on the, on the Galilean Sea. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would have been John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. It was all part of working, trying to, trying to get, catch the fish. And he jumped into the water and went to Jesus. What an incredible picture of forgiveness. Because here's what Peter knew. The only person that could give him forgiveness, the only person that could answer his failure, the only person were the same eyes of the one that he saw the very last time before, in the middle of his failure, before Jesus was crucified. He hasn't been able to talk to him. He hasn't been around him. He's had this void. He has wept and cried himself to sleep. He is an utter failure. He is broken. He has walked away from this calling. Because Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're going to be the leader of the New Testament church. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You're going to do great things, Peter. I've called you to do great things. But Peter was an ultimate failure, or so he thought. And he runs and he goes to fishing. And who comes to meet him but Jesus? And he doesn't wait for the boat. He doesn't wait for a call. He doesn't wait for anything. He jumps into the water and wades through the water to get to the shores just so he could get to Jesus because he knew that only if he could look into those eyes, if he could hear his voice once again, if he could touch him once again, it would make sense. It's the same thing with us. Listen, the only person that can absolve the failures of your life is Jesus. The only person that can make sense of the mess of your life is Jesus. Even if you've gone back to your old ways, I'm telling you, he's there. And the only person that can, that can redeem, that can redeem the story of your life is Jesus. I can't do it. Contrary to popular opinion, <coughs> excuse me, a priest can't do it. The pastor can't do it. A man of God can't do it. We're all just, we're, we're feet of clay, man. We're, we're as jacked up as you are. I'm just one beggar to another beggar where to find food. But... Only through Jesus Christ can redemption be found. The Bible says it's only through Jesus Christ that the sins of man can be redeemed. It's only through the blood that he shed. It's only through his actions. It's only at the feet of Jesus. And the reality is, is that through this process, Peter finds redemption. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're battling failure and everything I'm saying, I'm all up in your kitchen and, you're, and rattling the pots and pans of your life, and I'm kind of making you go to a place that you don't want to go and you're mentally there. The only person that can redeem that is Jesus. The only person that can change that is Jesus. The only person that can absolve that is Jesus. And the question is, will you let him? Because you beating yourself up over your failures isn't helping you. You beating yourself up over your past doesn't help you. You're beating yourself up over your incompetence or over your sin or, or, or over your jacked upness, if that's even a word, doesn't help you. It hasn't worked, has it? 
It doesn't work. The only thing that can satisfy, the only thing that can bring relief, the only thing that can take the sting of sin away is Jesus. So quit beating yourself up. But you don't understand I'm a loser. I'm just telling you, you're in a room full of losers. But, but, but I'm a failure. I'm telling you, if you really knew everybody's failures in this room, you'd probably feel better about yourself. It's true. You got to pray it. You got to get to Jesus and just say, here I am. Here's my life. If you can use this, it's yours. And the last thing you have to do is adjust it. Adjust it. By it, I mean your life. It's called repentance. And repentance is more than just sorrow for what you've done wrong. Repentance is changing. Repentance is, is, is acknowledging where you went wrong and making sure that you make a course correction so that you don't do that again. Read on in John 21, verse 15. Later on that day, when they'd finished eating. Again, eating is a very spiritual activity, I'm telling you. It's all in Scripture. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him this the third time. Do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, anytime there's redundancy in Scripture, it's there to emphasize or to highlight. I think there's three questions because there were three failings. I think he denied Christ three times, and three times Jesus asked him. That's just my own little theory for whatever it's worth. But here, regardless of that, the reality is, is that G Jesus drills Peter on this question three times. And he asks Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter responds with, yes, Lord, I love you. And he gives him an assignment. And the assignment is, quit fishing and feed the sheep. Quit going back to the old way and do what I've called you to do. Quit going back to what's safe and quit being fearful and lead and do what I've called you to do. Because what he was saying to Peter is for three years I had poured into you. You were part of the inner circle. I'm going to use you to do great things. The New Testament church, you're going to lead it. You're going to see more people come to faith in me. More people hear the message of me. Greater things are you going to do than I because I'm going to go to the Father for you. And the only way that's going to happen is if you leave the nets, you leave the boats, just like you left it three years ago, and you follow me. And don't let any failure or, or any slip up or any problem deter you from that. Adjust your life, Peter. Repent. Turn from your ways. Make the course corrections that you need to make. Understand, I want you never to forget this moment. I have called you to feed my sheep. Now we know in scripture that the shepherd is a pastoral role. And so he's called to be a pastor, to be a leader, to be a vocational minister, not to be a marketplace or, 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 to, or do the work of fishing, but that he is to teach and he is to preach and he is to share the gospel message. That's what Jesus Christ brought him as a disciple to do. And so Jesus is taking Peter through this process of repentance. And it's the same thing with us. That when we go through times where we feel like we're not worthy, God comes back to us because that call is without repentance. That calling that God has on your life. But I've crashed and burned. But that's not what He called you to do. He calls you to do this. He calls you to do this. He calls you to do this. That's so why people leave church. Because it's easier just to ignore it than it is to deal with it. 
let your heart get hard than to deal with it. But the reality is, is when you get along with God and you get quiet with God, that calling comes to the surface. It just floats to the surface. And that's what's happening with Peter. He's having to deal with this. And Jesus is saying to him, I want you to feed my sheep. That's what I called you to do. Here's the interesting thought. Peter asked him about, what about the other disciples? Look at verse 21 and 22. Then when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Pointing to one of the disciples. Verse 22, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, that's what, I, that, what is that to you? You follow me. It's interesting. He goes, well, what about their calling? What about this person? What about this person? And Jesus says, that's none of your business. This is an A and B conversation. You need to see your way out, Peter. That's what he tells them. This is between me and them. This had nothing to do. Listen to what I'm telling you, Peter. And that's what I'm saying to you. Sometimes we sit in church and we think, well, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? Or I'm not as good as so-and-so. I'm not as good as so-and-so. Or I'm better than so-and-so. And I'm better than so-and-so. And I know their sin and my sin isn't as bad as their sin. And what Jesus would say is, what is it to you? Mm, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Don't worry about them. What about you? Listen to me. There's somebody in this room, you need to hear what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what anybody else in this room has done. It's, what about you? What have I called you to do? What have I called you to be? What am I asking of you? Forget everybody else. What about you? Because we serve a God who deals with us one-on-one. He has the ability to convict us and to comfort us one-on-one. And he calls us. And that's what he said to Peter. Peter, don't worry about anybody else. You do what I've called you to do. Feed my sheep. Don't worry about anybody else. Just focus on me. The Bible says after John 21 that Peter and his life was never the same. They left that place. Jesus ascends, the Bible says, to the right hand of the Father. And a weeks later, as they're in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit ascends upon that place. And as the Holy Spirit baptized each one of them with, 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 with the Holy Spirit, and each one of them began to speak in tongues, and the utterance came forward, and Peter stood, the guy who was scared of a little girl in a courtyard in the middle of the night, Weeks later, stands in the marketplace, not in the church, not in the synagogue, but in the marketplace of Jerusalem, and began to pronounce the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the first gospel presentation that's given. It's the first salvation of humanity that's really received. And 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ that day. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and every day since, they added to their number daily those that were saved. Matter of fact, there was so much going on. There was so much happening. The church was growing so fast that they were having to enlist and to train leaders and volunteers because there was so much work that was going on. And if you read the end of the book of Acts, there's no closing statement. Every single book in the New Testament has opening statements and closing statements, but there's no salutation at the end of the book of Acts. And theologians conjecture that because the book of Acts, which is the story of the New Testament church, is still being written today. The effect of what God did through Peter's life is still being lived today in this very moment. And what I'm trying to tell you is, is that in the middle of your failure, in the middle of your darkest night, in the middle of the most tragic situation, if you will but say, I own part of this, If you will but say, God, break me and do what you want to do in me so that your will is done. If you will but pray it through and you will adjust, you will bring repentance into your life, God will take what the enemy tries to use to harm you and turn around and use it for his good. And so today, one of the things we're going to do as we close this service out 
is we're going to do something, a sacrament of the church that symbolizes this. And that is we're going to partake of Holy Communion together. So what I'm going to ask you to do in this room is I'm just going to ask you these few moments. I'm going to give you some instructions in a second. But I just want to ask you for everyone if you'd bow your head and close your eyes. Father, I just thank you today. Lord, I thank you today for your word. And I thank you today, Lord, for, for God, for second chances. And I thank you, Lord, that you're a God who loves us even in the midst of our failure. And you specialize, Lord, in fixing broken people. And that's when your strength is perfected. So I pray in these next few moments, Lord, that you, Lord, would do a work in our heart and do a work in our life that you want to do as we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen.